Hello, welcome to The Quest, Vision in an Age of Crisis. This series is on the crises of our times. An announcement. I mentioned at the start of the last episode that The Quest series of lectures is just starting and that prices have been halved. A new development that has just occurred is that there is now further help with some bursaries made available. If this is of interest, contact me via information at www.alanmulhern.com. I have for the moment finished what I have to say on the European situation and will now continue with the more general and theoretical exploration of capitalism. I wish to return to the general philosophical theme of capitalism as a system of creative destruction. The term was used to great effect, you may remember, by Schumpeter, the renowned economic historian, when referring to the cycles of the capitalist system, referring to them as the gales of creative destruction. The image was that the less efficient and less needed firms get blown out of the economy by the forces of recession, thereby allowing new entrants into it, thus leading to regeneration and a new cycle. In this episode, I firstly observe what Karl Marx had to say on this subject. I will then mention in quick order some of the main ideas concerning the crises of the system. All of these points, incidentally, were explored in one form or another by Karl Marx, way back in the 19th century. My view on some of them is different, but he was remarkably insightful. These points include capitalism regularly undermines its competitive and free market structure, with the inevitable emergence of large monopolies and cartels, which dominate their industries. Capitalism in reality is allied to and dependent on the state. Capitalism leads to world domination. Capitalism and the revolutions of technology have changed the nature of the planet and our existence in an extraordinarily short period of time. Capitalism leads to profound inequality. The evolution of the system is punctuated by periodic overproduction. The money system gains a semi-independent existence. The price mechanism and the visible hand do not prevent periodic financial crises. Capitalism has promoted powerful changes in consciousness and human nature and these are now accelerating. Capitalism as a result of all the above is destroying its base in nature and this has now reached a tipping point which is catastrophic for nature but also for the capitalist system. Although Marx's theory has been demoted from the powerful position it once had, Marx is still worth reading for his historical insights into the nature of the capitalist system. I wish to quote extensively from Chapter 1 of the Communist Manifesto, written in 1848 to accompany the largely European uprisings of that year. Not only is the prose a delight to read, and not only has it been a source of inspiration to the millions who have taken up the communist cause, it so accurately depicts the powerful, destructive, creative force of the bourgeoisie, which is Marxist term for capitalists. He writes, The discovery of America, the rounding of the Cape, opened up fresh ground for the rising bourgeoisie. The East Indian and Chinese markets the colonisation of America, trade with the colonies, the increase in the means of exchange and in commodities generally gave to commerce, to navigation, to industry, an impulse never before known. 
the early system of industry now no longer sufficed for the growing wants of the new markets. The manufacturing system took its place. Markets kept ever growing, the demand ever rising. Thereupon, steam and machinery revolutionised industrial production. The place of manufacture was taken by the giant, modern industry. The place of the industrial middle classes by industrial millionaires. The leaders of whole industrial armies, the modern bourgeoisie. Modern industry has established the world market, for which the discovery of America paved the way. This market has given an immense development to commerce, to navigation, to communication by land. And, in proportion, the bourgeoisie developed, increased its capital, and pushed into the background every class handed down from the Middle Ages. The modern bourgeoisie is itself the product of a long course of development, of a series of revolutions in the modes of production and of exchange, which was accompanied by a corresponding political advance of that class. The executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervour in the icy waters of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal worth into exchange value and in place of the numberless, indefeasible, chartered freedoms has set up that single, unconscionable freedom, free trade. In one word, for exploitation, veiled by religious and political illusions, it has substituted naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. The bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honoured and looked up to with reverend awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into its paid wage labourers. The bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relation to a mere money relation. The bourgeoisie has been the first to show what man's activity can bring about. It has accomplished wonders far surpassing Egyptian pyramids, Roman aqueducts and Gothic cathedrals. It has conducted expeditions that have put into the shade all former exoduses of nations and crusades. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionising the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relations of society. Everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguish the bourgeois epoch from all earlier ones. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profaned. The need for a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. The bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. All old established national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed. They are dislodged by new industries whose introduction becomes a life and death question for all civilised nations. By industries that no longer work up indigenous raw material but raw material drawn from the remotest zones 
industries whose products are consumed not only at home, but in every quarter of the globe. In place of the old wants satisfied by the production of the country, we find new wants requiring for their satisfaction the products of distant lands and climes. In place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we have intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations, and, as in material, so also in intellectual production. The intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. National one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness become more and more impossible, and from the numerous national and local literatures there arises a world literature. The bourgeoisie, by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production, by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all, even the most barbarian nations, into civilization. The cheap prices of commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls, with which it forces the barbarians' intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. It compels all nations on pain of extinction, to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, that is, to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. The bourgeoisie has subjected the country to the rule of the towns. It has created enormous cities, has greatly increased the urban population as compared with the rural, and has thus rescued a considerable part of the population from the idiocy of rural life. Just as it has made the country dependent on the towns, so it has made barbarian and semi-barbarian countries dependent on the civilised ones. Nations of peasants on nations of bourgeois, the east on the west. The bourgeoisie has agglomerated population, centralised the means of production, and has concentrated property in a few hands. The necessary consequence of this was political centralisation. Independent or loosely connected provinces with separate interests, laws, governments and systems of taxation became lumped together into one nation with one government, one code of laws, one national class interest, one frontier and one customs tariff. The bourgeoisie, during its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. Subjection of nature's forces to man, machinery, application of chemistry to industry and agriculture, steam navigation, railways, electric telegraphs, clearing of whole continents for cultivation, canalisation of rivers, whole populations conjured out of the ground, what earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labour. We see then the means of production and of exchange on whose foundation the bourgeoisie built itself up were generated out of feudal society. At a certain stage in the development of these means of production and of exchange the conditions under which feudal society produced and exchanged, the feudal organisation of agriculture and manufacturing industry, in one word, the feudal relations of property, 
became no longer compatible with the already developed productive forces. They became so many fetters. They had to be burst asunder. They were burst asunder. Into their place stepped free competition, accompanied by a social and political constitution adapted for it and the economic and political sway of the bourgeois class. Rarely, if ever, in the history of political or economic analysis has a visionary scaled such heights of prose, analysis and persuasion. Here Marx presents, as never before, or even thereafter, an extraordinary insight into the creative, destructive nature of capitalism. That was written in 1848, and so much is still relevant to this day. No one was more conscious than Marx that capitalism had crisis built into its very fabric. I wish now to merely sketch the main points concerning the causes of these crises of the capitalist system. Further podcasts will take up many of these themes. Firstly, the price mechanism and the visible hand do not prevent periodic financial crises which follow exceptional booms. At the start of these cycles, investment capital pours into new profit opportunities. The banking system inflates the boom, creating a speculative overfinance bubble, typically turning into a mania. A tipping point is reached, collapse is triggered, prices of stocks and assets connected to the boom decrease, and profit turns to losses. From inflation to depression, the psychological and economic vocabulary are interchangeable. Secondly, money gains a semi-independent existence since banks are sources of money creation. The control by central banks of their own banking system has usually been insufficient in expansionary periods of capitalism. The financial system plays a major role in augmenting every boom by credit creation, and this system has an inherent tendency for major financial collapses. Intertwined with the official banking system lies an enormous area of speculation and investment. The creation of vast financial speculative bubbles is like a Frankenstein monster, an apparently brilliant creation with a life of its own, towering over the real world of production and exchange, threatening to destroy it. Thirdly, capitalism, despite its competitive ideals, tends to produce cartels and monopolies. When industries start their life cycle with small firms, there is frequently an impulse towards large-scale firms emerging, which produce at much lower average cost and at larger volume scales. Some industries and trades, however, will stay dominated by small and micro suppliers, since they do not possess economies of scale by which cost reductions are generated at higher volume levels. This leads in some industries to a natural development of oligopolies, cartels and monopolies. Thus, competitive free market capitalism undermines itself and produces uncompetitive market structures. The dangers of this are evident in the financial system with increasing levels of concentration and dominance. The top three banks in the UK, for example, in 2015 owned assets five times the size of the UK GDP. Fourthly, it is often thought that capitalism is synonymous with free markets, but this is only partially the case. 
Capitalism in reality is allied to and dependent on the state, although this is, as previously indicated, a strength. At the same time, it illustrates a weakness of the economic system. It is critically dependent on the state, and without it, it could not function. Mistaken policies, for example, can lead very rapidly to an economy's ruin. Likewise, in the present pandemic crisis of 2020, its reliance upon the state and its capacity for money creation fiscal expansion, propping up the economy in times of a slump, which is increasingly looked to as an essential role of the state, illustrates this deep dependence of the economic system upon government and the state apparatus. This is quite different from the 19th and early 20th century, for example. Fifthly, capitalism and world domination is also a major feature of this system. Capitalism replaces all previous economic systems, which are far less productive. It cannot be confined to one area, region or country. Thus, fear and desire, or greed, are the psychological drivers of the system, which, as it expands, eliminates other, less efficient economic formations. Native peoples and their way of life are destroyed. Feudal systems are replaced and agrarian ways of life disappear. As capitalism develops, it tends to replace even previous stages of its own system. Thus, the mercantilist system, based upon trade, is replaced by industrial capitalism in the 18th century, for example, which in turn is replaced by post-industrial capitalism, service sector-dominated economies. Sixthly, capitalism and technological change. The economic system has been characterised by long-run, extremely powerful cycles, referred to as Kondratiev waves, in tribute to a Russian economist of the Stalinist era, who suggested that these cycles implied an evolution and self-correction of the system. These were long-term cycles originating in technological innovation and were the foundation of prosperity, for example, the steam engine from 1780 to 1830, the steel industry, railroads and ocean liners from 1830 to 1880, electrification and subsequent innovation from 1880 to 1930, automobiles and petrochemicals 1930 to 1970, information technology 1970 to the present, leading to emerging with digital technologies and artificial intelligence the year 2000 onwards. Technological changes dominate not only the economy but every aspect of society and even our consciousness. With respect to the brilliant but immensely unfortunate Kondratiev, the economist, Stalin objected to his views because they implied the capitalist nations were not going to collapse, as Marxist-Leninist theory predicted, but merely undergo cycles. Kondratiev was sent to a concentration camp in Siberia and was shot by a firing squad in 1938. Seventhly, capitalism and inequality is another major problem of the system. To impose equality of income and wealth of course destroys incentive and competition. Capitalism depends on incentives for personal gain and advancement. Without this the economy cannot function. Technological progress disappears and wealth creation dries up. Inequalities arise from many sources and a certain degree of inequality is inevitable 
in every economic system, especially in capitalism. However, that does not excuse the gross inequalities that occur as capitalism leans towards a free market philosophy. There is no doubt that this can be mitigated by intelligent and prudent redistributions through taxation, welfare state, public goods and the like. After the Second World War, the capitalist system was marked by greater equality as incomes increased and the long boom set in. However, from the late 1970s, in most capitalist countries, and also in China, this was reversed, and most of them experienced increasing inequality in all measures. This is storing up tremendous alienation, resentment and explosive political reaction that is emerging in our own times. Here are some examples. In 1978, the top 1% of Americans controlled 23% of the nation's wealth. In 2015, however, their wealth share had doubled. The concentration of wealth and economic power has grown even more extreme among America's top 0.01%, that is one out of every 10,000 families. In 1978, they controlled 2.2% of the nation's wealth, and in 2015, this had grown five times. The wealth disparities in Russia are even more severe, where Russian millionaires control 62% of the wealth, or nearly double the levels of the United States. And according to Credit Suisse, in 2015, the top 10% of Russia's population controlled 85% of the country's wealth, with just 111 individuals controlling nearly one-fifth. In China, meanwhile, wealth disparities have grown more rapidly than almost all other countries in the world. Between 1990 and 2016, the GINI index, a widely accepted measure of income distribution, rose by 20 points in China, which is enormous. That's nearly triple the rise that took place in India, also a country of great wealth disparities. Worse, it's more than 10 times the rise that took place in advanced OECD countries, and also compared to the newly industrialised countries and Asia's low-income countries. Even this measure understates the large regional discrepancies in China between the impoverished countryside and the industrial metropolis, between the small coastal provinces and the giant western regions. Eighthly, capitalism is given to overproduction, or a lack of demand for its products. This is famously part of Keynes's analysis of the deficiencies of capitalism in the 1920s and 30s. But once again, I would like to quote Karl Marx, who had spotted this back in 1848 in the Communist Manifesto. Here is what he has to say about the crisis of overproduction. Modern bourgeois society, with its relations of production, of exchange and of property, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and exchange, is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the nether world, whom he is called up by his spells. It is enough to mention the commercial crises that by their periodical return put the existence of the entire bourgeois society on its trial, each time more threateningly. In these crises, a great part, not only of the existing products, but also of the previously created productive forces, are periodically destroyed. In these crises, there breaks out an epidemic that in all earlier epochs would have seemed an absurdity, the epidemic of overproduction. 
society suddenly finds itself put back into a state of momentary barbarism. It appears as if a famine, a universal war of devastation, had cut off the supply of every means of subsistence. Industry and commerce seem to be destroyed. And why? Because there is too much civilization, too much means of subsistence, too much industry, too much commerce. The productive forces at the disposal of society no longer tend to further the development of the conditions of bourgeois property. On the contrary, they have become too powerful for these conditions, by which they are fettered. And so soon as they overcome these fetters, they bring disorder into the whole of bourgeois society, endanger the existence of bourgeois property. The conditions of this society are too narrow to comprise the wealth created by them. And how does the bourgeoisie get over these crises? On the one hand, by enforced destruction of a mass of productive forces. On the other, by the conquest of new markets and by the more thorough exploitation of the old ones. That is to say, by paving the way for more extensive and more destructive crises and by diminishing the means whereby crises are prevented. Capitalism, finally, we should mention destruction and extinction. Many of the technologies of capitalism have a destructive impact on the planet and animal life. Mankind has always exploited the resources of the world, but capitalism is most adept at doing this because of the immense development of its technologies. Capitalism is not only the latest development in the destruction of nature, but it has now reached a stage in which nature is beginning to destroy it. Since this has been a very important part of the podcast thus far, and will continue to be so, I will leave this for further elaboration in the podcast to come. You may wonder if any of this has any metaphysical dimension at all. Well, I believe it does. If one looks at the Bible, Genesis, we read that Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and in the state of no labour and complete harmony. However, on exit from the Garden of Eden, by eating the apple of consciousness, presumably, the tree of knowledge, they fell into consciousness. They fell into this world. They evolved, if you like, and this became a world of labour. And they were instructed to labour by the sweat of their brow. And this was a kind of death state for human beings, the experience of death, whereas previously they had not experienced it at all. And this is a deep thought that the falling into the world of work and consciousness is a falling into the awareness of death. Taking the long view, I wrote a short metaphysical poem using the book of Genesis and the fall from the Garden of Eden as the reference point. From Paradise to Destruction, which expresses a strong view on this theme, which reads, From Eden cast in fallen state, to world of death condemned, both Eve and Adam tears did shed, this paradise must end. Banished into endless toil, out of primal grace, the shadow within consciousness then gripped the human race. Economic systems rise, 
but never calm our fear. Towards the gates of death we go, if you have ears, then hear.